Hey, it's Michael, and welcome to another podcast episode. Before I get into today's episode, we wanted to make an offer to you. If you go to firmsconsulting.com, you will see a pop-up or you'll see a place to add in your email address or you can register on the Firms Consulting website. If you register onto that website, you get put into an exclusive list. And what you get in that exclusive list is samples of the content we have available to FC Insiders. So that said, I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Welcome to another great session. Today we have Eric Pleiner. Eric is a CEO of YSC Consulting, a boutique consulting firm that has been around for over 30 years. Eric has more than 20 years experience in leadership development, organizational culture, and diversity and inclusion initiatives. He has coached teams and leaders of many Fortune 500 companies across advertising, media, entertainment, fashion and luxury, private equity, and more. Welcome, Eric. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Chris. It's great to be here. Eric, to start with, could you share with us how you ended up running YSC Consulting? Sure, sure. It was an unexpected path to get here. I started my career in the public sector uh, back in the late 90s, coordinating a diversity and inclusion program, although we didn't use that language at the time. Uh, but a diversity and inclusion program for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts uh, in the Department of Education. And I started a career working with young people who were looking to build their leadership in schools, but also with adults who were supporting those young people and spent the better part of, uh, of the next 15 years working in a mix of government agencies, nonprofit community organizations, and, uh, and ad adjacent organizations. Along the way, I thought, you know, my favorite part of doing leadership work is the opportunity to have impact, not just on individuals' lives, but on organizations and on communities. And I thought a lot about what it would be like to be able to have bigger impact. I'd done an undergraduate degree in peace and justice studies and American studies. So I was really focused on social movements and on organizing. And so I'd always written off the private sector as a place where people didn't really have impact in my mind. But along the way, I got the idea that maybe I should learn a little bit more about the private sector before I wrote it off entirely. And I went to business school nights and weekends while I was working in the Bloomberg administration of the city of New York, running leadership development programs, and discovered a passion for having impact from the private sector that, uh, that even exceeded what I had been able to do previously. Um, I, shortly afterwards, I was recruited as an entry-level consultant with YSC Consulting. I thought consulting sounded like the worst job in the world, Chris. I, I told the recruiter, you never do anything in any real depth and you spend your life living in airports, no thanks. And she said, maybe you should learn a little bit more about what this is. I fell in love with the idea of having broad-based access to people working in every field I could imagine all over the world of helping them to think through their problems by drawing on lots of different contexts and experiences. And eight and a half years later, I found myself as the chief executive of this now 32-year-old British organization with consultants in 10 countries and clients in 50. What was your experience like adjusting to consulting? 
<laughs> um, well, again, my fear was that I'd never get to do anything in any real depth. Coming from internal roles, um, I, I just thought when you work internally somewhere, you can, do, you can focus on every detail of a project. You work with a team that partners together year over year. And that was all true. But what I discovered in consulting is you can do stuff in tremendous depth, but at a very different pace. You also get the benefit of adding breath. How do we look across organizations at ways to solve problems? And I discovered that I loved that, a, a kind of variety that I'd always sought in my career, um, but never really had in an in-house role was the foundation of consulting. You got, to, uh, you got to try different things or experience different things every single day. And I loved that. Uh, I adjusted by learning from great people and surrounding myself with colleagues who, to this day, I learn something new from every single day and approaching my clients with that same orientation. They're paying me, but sometimes I feel like I should be paying them because of how much I get to learn from them about what they do and how they see the world too. Eric, and uh, during your time being a CEO of YSC Consulting, what were some pivotal moments that allowed you to gain more momentum for the company? Yeah, well, I've I've been the chief executive for just over three years now. So at the time that you and I are recording this, Chris, the last two years, we've been uh, entirely subsumed by the COVID pandemic. And so in the beginning, the momentum was all about building a great team, learning from the people who had done the work before us, evolving our client relationships, and really focusing on what we wanted to be for the future. And then all of that came to a screeching halt when, like lots of consultancies, in about a six-week period in 2020, we lost about 50% of our business. We didn't know, is that something that was gonna go on for a long time or were we ever going to recover? But we managed to make it through the early days of the COVID pandemic without laying off or furloughing a single employee anywhere in the world and making the choice to keep investing in our future even in the moment where the present seemed shaky. So when you ask about momentum, We knew we had to do enough to stabilize the business, but not forget about planning for the next chapter and the chapter beyond if we wanted to make it to those chapters. So once we were out of the the initial phases that were so bad for so many of us in consulting, probably about six months after the COVID pandemic hit the UK and the US, um, we began to, to invest in our future again, innovating new technologies, hiring more people, expanding what we were doing with the focus on what we wanted to be on the other side. And if you could go back and give yourself advice when COVID started, what would you say? Yeah, number one, don't panic. Um, Look at the story, not just for today or this week or this month or this quarter, but think about where we need to get to and what we can learn right away about the future of the business. The truth is that we adapted very quickly in many ways, but our clients, even where we were ready to start to do things virtually, our clients weren't quite ready yet. And so I wish I had taken some of the lessons that we learned as a global firm earlier on and shared them with our clients more directly. But everyone was was in a bit of crisis, like I said. So the fact was, 
We, my leadership team sits in on four different continents. We had never been in a room together. We were used to working virtually. There was a lot that we had learned from that that we were able to share with our clients quickly. Um, but they weren't used to it yet. They weren't ready yet. And so a bit of patience with myself, a bit of patience with the, the adjustment period for clients and the world and continued generosity in sharing what we knew with anybody who would listen is something I would encourage myself to, uh, to dial up sooner if I had a chance to go back then. Eric, and what do you think are some long lasting changes because of COVID in terms of how you run your business? Yeah, I think the, I'm not saying anything especially revolutionary here, but the psychological contract that people have with work, I think is changed forever. For a long time, we talked about the idea of going back. And I think that's probably another lesson, by the way, Chris, that I would tell myself is don't worry about going back, start worrying about going forward. Um, and so going forward means that there's never going to be a time, I don't think, where we work in quite the ways that we did collectively before the pandemic. It means that employers have to think collectively about what is the reason that people work? A paycheck is part of it, sure, but it's not the only reason. And as lots of thinkers have posited for a long time, understanding the personal sense of purpose that people bring to their work and how they can connect that desire for meaning and purpose to what they do every day has to be a priority for all of us. It has to be about, about leading a successful business, about growing a successful business, about performing, but it also has to be about what matters to people. The sooner that each one of us embraces that, the better the experience for our employees, and I think the better the experience for our businesses in the long run. Eric, and during this tough time of the last two years, what do you think were the key reasons why your company not just survived, but thrived during this yeah. time? Yeah, the first was that we took care of our people first. But like I said, we, we laid off no one, we furloughed no one, at a time when lots of companies in our space, and we are, we are leadership strategy consultants, um, lots of companies in our space had to let go of a lot of people to be able to keep their doors open. We made a choice to say, you know what, that really has to be a last resort for us. Um, and that was a big part of our thriving was that we nurtured our community. The second was that we did we did robust scenario planning. We looked at the worst case scenario, the likely scenario, and then an aspirational scenario with a couple of other models in between. We modeled them out quantitatively, and we also built the qualitative scenarios that we thought would get us there. And the amazing thing was we outperformed all of the scenarios that we had built in part because we planned thoroughly to understand what would each action potentially lead to as a next consequence. That combination of really focusing on the quantitative part of our business and the human caring part of our community and our people, I think was the formula that helped us get to the other side quickly. Eric, and in terms of serving clients, yeah. what are the key adjustments you made that allowed you to succeed? Well, just as you and I are speaking to each other virtually right now, we spent a lot of time helping our clients to adjust to the notion that you can get real value by being together on a screen. Um, 
And that was a big change. It also meant that, that our people spent a lot less time in airports and on air, airplanes uh, in the way that consultants often did, but it meant we had to re-envision what is the reason that the client is engaging us and how do we help them solve their core challenges rather than they're just paying us for time. They're paying us to be in the room with them. What's the thing that they're looking for? And whether it was partnership, whether it was uh, thought leadership, whether it was careful insight, or whether it was a kind of relational companionship that especially for senior leaders, they couldn't get within their companies. Those things all mattered, but we had to find different ways to deliver them, not just by getting on a plane and going and sitting in the room. Eric, the next question I wanted to ask you is, I know a question that many of our listeners wish that I would ask you. Okay. Many of our listeners are in a situation where they are quite senior in a large organization, not necessarily yeah. even consulting, yeah. but they want to start their own boutique consulting firm. Yeah. And the question I wanted to ask you, if God forbid you had to start from scratch and build uh-huh. a boutique consulting firm, Let's say yeah. we're looking at the first 90 days. What would you do during those first 90 days to lay the foundation for a successful long-term business that is starting yeah. to generate some profits for you as well? Yeah, great, great question. And not, not an easy one, but, but I think the first thing I would do is try to determine and paint a picture of what is my goal? What am I trying to get to? It, the temptation might be to run around and scramble to get clients or develop relationships with associates. But the most important thing is to start from the end, or at least the benchmark by which you wish to measure the first phase of your time in business. Where do I want to get to? And then work backwards and say, if what I want is to be of a certain size in terms of revenue, or what I want is to be of a certain size in terms of client engagement or type of clients, whatever your vision is, paint that picture really clearly and then work backwards. What are the actions that are likely to get me there? What are the relationships that I need? What are the networks that I need to leverage? What do I need to charge? How many colleagues do I need? How many hours will this take? Work backwards until each step of your plan is preceded by one that eventually gets you to the chair you're sitting in at that moment. That's a fundamental principle from the world of education called backwards design. Using that backwards design, rather than just generating activity, generate productive activity that is focused on the priorities that will deliver the outcome that you want. Eric, and if we dig a little deeper and you actually had to do it yourself and you had 90 days, I think of one of those shows where they put you in the city you don't know, give you $100, let's say $1,000. Yeah, probably more than $100. And build a boutique consulting firm. If we talk about it from in practical terms, what what specific steps would you take? First thing is write out that end stage. Write out the end stage. Get clear on the vision where I'm going to end up. The second thing I would do is write out all of the contacts that I have, the relationships that I need to leverage, the networks that I need to engage with to be able to make those activities possible. Consulting, uh, which is my field, I know not not everyone's field, but this is true of of a lot of disciplines. Consulting is a relationship business. 
So who do I know and who do they know? But before I start making those calls and before I start sitting down with those people, I've got to have that really clear endpoint articulated because people are going to ask you, what are you trying to do? How can I help you? People in our networks, no matter who we are, love to help us. People love to be asked to help. Um, but you got to be really clear on what your ask is because you might only get one chance to ask. So start by writing down the endpoint, build the plan backwards, then start making those calls or sending out those emails to your network with a very clear and specific ask for every one of those meetings. Do you want an introduction? Are you looking for financing? Are you looking for a partner? Do you need an audience? Whatever it is, know your ask before you go in. Um, and then the third thing would be probably uh, to make sure that I'm planning to take care of myself along the way, exercise, rest, uh, doing all of the things that I need to do to be able to run for, for the long haul. And in terms of business development, what do you yeah. find works now? Yep. Doing great work is the best business development there is. Okay. It's true in most fields, but in consulting, I often say that business development is just free consulting that you do so well that somebody wants to pay you to come back and do more. So I think that means be prepared to give some stuff away in the beginning, but make sure that the work that you are giving away is of the same high quality as the work that you would deliver to a client that was paying you your top fees. Give that work away thoughtfully to people who can not only be repeat customers for you, but also be able to make referrals for you, engage you in their networks, and help you to leverage that early freebie to turn into paid business for the long run. Eric, and could you elaborate on this advice of uh, doing some work for free in the beginning, but doing a really good job? I think that the questions people will ask is what kind of work, the duration, how much of the free work should they offer and so on? Yeah, I would, um, I would take it even back a step further, Chris, and say the minute you get the meeting with someone, that introductory meeting is not just a meet and greet. It's not just a chance to... to uh, to encounter someone for the first time, that is your opportunity to go in and start consulting in that moment. So again, think through before I go into this 30 minute, 60 minute, 90 minute meeting with a new contact, what do I want to be different by the end of that meeting? Do I wanna walk out with a commitment to engage? Do I wanna walk out with three contacts? Do I wanna walk out with a follow-up meeting? Whatever it is. Our field involves a mix of individual executive assessment, executive coaching, advisory to leaders. So when someone calls us in to do a pitch in response to an RFP or to talk about a piece of work, right away, that first meeting, I go into the mode of assessing the individual and giving them some coaching live in the room, giving them some counsel, not from a place of my expertise, but from a place of my questioning, my curiosity, my desire to learn about their business and to help them see something that they couldn't see before I came into the room. They may think it's a business development meeting. My job is to make sure it's a live coaching session right then and there. Eric, and for situation which we were describing where you are going to a city you don't know, you don't have any network there, where yeah. would you start? So if, if I don't know anybody, the first thing I'm gonna do is call people that I do know to see who do they know there. Again, people love to be asked for help and love, love to help. So if I know no one in the city I'm going to, either I'm going to go somewhere else or I'm going to see who do I know who has a relationship that, um, that they would be happy to make that connection for me. 
start by building the relationships with people who can help you to build your network quickly, but be really clear on what your ask is. I get calls all the time from people who say, hey, would you mind spending 15 minutes talking with my friend who's looking to break into this field or who's moving to New York or who's moving to London or who uh, is setting up their own coaching practice? And I'm always happy to do it. But my ability to support them is completely different if they come in with a specific ask versus if they think they're just going to have an exploratory conversation and I'm somehow going to enlighten them about the world of consulting in, in 15 or 20 minutes. When they have a specific and clear ask, I can help them. And that's the same thing that I would look for if I'm going to that city where I know nobody else. How do I leverage the networks of my networks? And how do I know exactly what I want to ask for from them? And then if you were on a show and you could yeah. not change the city and you didn't know anyone who knew someone in that city, would you yeah. go and uh, contact associations or what would be your steps? Anywhere where I have an opportunity to spend time with people and to begin to deliver a version of that free service that I mentioned before is a great opportunity for me to begin to build a network. So maybe it's, maybe it's a, um, a business council, maybe it's a, uh, a local business association, but in general, the, the field that I work in tends to be with large corporates. Most of our clients are Fortune 100, Fortune 500, FTSE 250 companies. In general, you don't show up at their doorstep or meet people right at a, at a networking event who can say, sure, let me take you into our CEO. But the goal is if you have no network, start off by building relationships, start off by building the network through whatever kind of community association, community organization, business association, business council, et cetera, that you can access. One other thing that I might think about is to think about the core parts of my identity where I have easy connection with people. Is it through a college alumni association? Is, do they have a network? Is it through a faith-based community or another identity-based community? Is it through, uh, through my country of origin? What are pieces of me that are important to me that I know I can easily connect with people on? In our field, we talk a lot about the psychological biases that can uh, affect the way that people make the wrong decisions about other people. We, we tend to view people more positively, for instance, who we have things in common with or just people who we like. You can use those risks to your advantage and say, instead of it just being about overestimating someone, how can I make a natural and easier connection with people who I already have stuff in common with? Eric, and during those 90 days, would you recommend a person who is trying to build a boutique consulting firm from the ground up? Would you recommend them to also focus on thought leadership or spend that time primarily on networking and building those connections as a foundation? Primarily on networking and connections. And here's why. The world is saturated with thought leadership. None of us is holding ideas that are so brilliant and so differentiated that the rest of the world will stop to look at us or listen to us. We have to know what we think and what our point of view is about issues that are important to our customers and prospective customers. But being brilliant is not enough. We have to connect with them meaningfully and if we attempt to just put out ideas, put out ideas, that gives you uh, maybe some credibility, but it doesn't get you customers. The thing that helps you to build a business is investing in your relationships with people. 
switching gears a little bit, talking about yeah. being a successful consultant. So we have yeah. many people in our audience who are working for large consulting firms or boutique, yeah. boutique consulting firms. Yeah. And I know that they want me to ask you a couple of questions related yeah. to how can they be more successful as a consultant, but also how can they maintain a healthy balance in their life? Because as you mentioned, it is a challenging uh, line of work. Yes. The first question I wanted to ask you is, I know that you have three kids. I do. You also have a very demanding job. How yes. do you balance? What advice could you give? Um, one of the unexpected gifts of the pandemic period has been the opportunity to look at what it means to be a consultant and to have a full career and a full family life in a very different way. I love the ability to work from home. I'm someone who is really motivated by the idea that I can get up in the morning, get ready, spend some quality time with my family, get my kids off to school and be back at my desk working earlier than I would have been if I was commuting to my office. Sometimes I like to go to the office because I like to connect with people. Those relationships are an important part of the balance that you're asking about, Chris. But Figuring out what are the things that are my priorities also means figuring out what are the things that are not priorities. What's the stuff that I want to let go of, get rid of, that interferes with my ability to do my job well. The pandemic forced some of that. It forced me to say, why do I commute in these ways at these times? What would it look like to with intent choose when I go to be with other people and at other times choose when I want to be home with my family for a commute to be 30 seconds from one room to another, rather than 30 minutes or two hours on, uh, on trains and walking. Um, and that's partly, uh, you know, during the pandemic, and again, with three small kids at home, I wrote a book, and people keep asking me, how did you run a global company and write a book and have time with your family? And the truth is, I gave up a lot of other stuff that I didn't realize was a time suck that it wasn't productive time for me, it wasn't satisfying time for me, it wasn't meaningful. And I found that I got more energy then by working more on the things that I loved and was passionate about, spending more time with my family, but a different kind of quality time. And the temptation is to say, do a lot less. But for me, it was do more, but really be thoughtful about what I was doing more of. Big change. Eric, you mentioned some of the things you had to give up and that allowed you an opportunity to have time for important things like writing a book and yeah. running a company and having a family. Yeah. Could you give us some examples? Because I think it could be helpful for people and they can think how they can apply in their own life. Yeah, sure. Well, the first thing, <laughs> and you know, this is easier said than done, but the number one thing was giving up meetings. Um, what do I mean by that? gosh, was I stunned when I looked at how much time I was spending in meetings that was not productive meeting time. Now I look forward to meetings because I'm more selective about when I engage in them. But before I had meetings all day, every day, and I still do sometimes, um, but all day, every day, because that's what we did. That was the culture of our workplace. It was the culture of many of our clients' workplaces. If we have something we wanna think through, let's have a meeting about it. Now I ask myself before I schedule a meeting, just like we discussed earlier in, in the conversation, Chris, what am I trying to get out of this? Is it, if, if what it is is about sharing information, then let's do it on Teams or on email or on some other information sharing application 
rather than spending time together just to share information with each other. Um, we instituted in our firm something that we call meat-free Fridays. That meant that every Friday we have no meetings. The idea is that people have focused time to be able to work, to catch up on their writing, on their reading, on their correspondence, on their client work, or even just on taking care of themselves. And when I decided to write the book, I added another day to the week. I added on Tuesdays, I tried keeping my schedule clear every week. Now to keep two days a week completely clear is, uh, is no small feat. And there are plenty of weeks where a meeting creeps in here or there, but my priority is to say, I can be way more productive by having a long block of time clear than trying to fit the work of my work in between meeting after meeting after meeting. That was number one, got rid of a lot of that. The second was, uh, was a lot about commuting. Now that's not something that's necessarily available to everyone. Uh, if you're someone though, who spends a lot of time in cars or spends a lot of time on trains, think about how do you use that time differently? Everybody listens to podcasts. I'm guessing some of your listeners are listening to us on a commute right now. Um, but how can you use the time in a way that allows you to do deeper thinking, reflecting on other people's ideas, and then incorporating those ideas quickly? And then the last was, and I know this is going to sound contradictory to what I just said before, being really smart and selective about when and how I was networking. It didn't mean to stop networking, but just going to events or activities just for the sake of going to them, I suddenly discovered that that might fulfill one part of me but it was really emotionally and physically draining in other ways and wasn't necessarily having the outcomes that I wanted it to. So before I chose to do any activity, it was how do I do it with intent? I'm not just gonna go to this cocktail reception at the end of the day, not just go to this mixer or this fundraiser unless I'm really clear about why I'm doing it. Those three things, huge difference. Incredibly helpful. Yeah, thanks. Eric and... Uh... You are the head of the company and yes. you have a lot of people who want to get promoted and yes. are very influential yes. <laughs> when it comes to their destiny, whether they will get promoted or not. What are the top things you are looking for in yeah. people when you're deciding if they are partner material, if they, are, if they should be going up the chain? Yeah, sure. Well, this is uh, we have a particular point of view about this as a firm because this is one of the things that we help our clients with. How do you identify the people that are likely to be the best and most successful leaders for your organization? So there are three things that form our approach to how we think about potential for success and a fourth one that I'm going to tag on at the end. This is all based on now, again, close to three decades of research across every industry you can imagine, again, uh, executed in, in just over 50 countries. The first is people with great judgment. How do people make sense of things? How do they make decisions about difficult issues or complex challenges? How do they gather data and how do they frame that data in explaining complex problems for other people? Can they make difficult things simple or easy for other people to understand? And when they're interacting with a client or interacting with colleagues, how do they show the quality of their judgment? If you wanna get a sense of your own judgment, number one, you can get some feedback from other people. Where have you seen me use great judgment? Where would you like to have seen me improve my judgment? What are the things that help me to be really analytical? What are the things that help me to uh, incorporate subjective data? 
get some feedback from other people, spend some time reflecting on the quality of your judgment. The second thing is drive. The people that I think make the best leaders and that our firm has consistently identified as having the potential to be successful senior executives are people who have the motivation to do something bigger than themselves. And we differentiate between the notion of ambition and aspiration. I don't just want people who are ambitious because people who are ambitious are often thinking about what's in it for me. But I wanna see people who aspire to have bigger impact on the company, on our clients and on the world. I want them to wanna to get ahead, but not just for their own sake, because of their belief in what they can do if they have more authority, more responsibility and more access. That's the aspiration that I'm looking for when I think about someone's drive. And the last one of those original three is their influencing skills. Can they be as compelling one-on-one -on -one talking with someone about an intense issue as they can standing in front of a large audience? Can they vary their influencing style so that they are as engaging to a first-time leader as they are to the board of directors of a FTSE 100 company? Can they show that they can tailor the same message to different audiences and really listen to or pay attention to what's landing and what's not. Judgment, drive, and influence. All three of those are developable. It's not like you're born with them or not, but you can focus on how do you build those. The fourth one that is additive for me is that I'm always looking for people with a strong sense of themselves, an ethical core, uh, a, a sense of their own moral code, a connection with their core identities, and an ability to understand others' identities and perspectives. I'm not a believer that any one of us is objective about anything, but the more skilled that we can be in our subjectivity, the more that we know where we come from, and the more that we pay attention to where other people come from, the better we can be as leaders for and with other people. Eric, and if we flip this a question and, and look at the red signs. What are those kind of red flags for you? Yeah, well, the, the first one I mentioned already, which is people whose individual ambition outweighs their aspiration, their belief of being part of something that's bigger than themselves. That's always a red flag for me. People who are, are overly strident about their point of view, who lack curiosity, um, who are thinking about pushing something rather than engaging and pulling something from and with other people. That's always a red flag for me. Um, certainly people who are either uh, too high level so that they're always flying at 30,000 feet or so in the weeds that they're only thinking about details but can't switch back and forth between those things can have a hard time being successful as leaders. The lack of ethics is something that is a huge red flag for me. People who don't understand the importance of ethics in shaping their point of view, in shaping their leadership, and in influencing an organization uh, can do a lot of damage. And then finally, people who don't care about other people's core identities. Lots of people are curious about, or maybe in some cases at the extreme and dismissive of the notions of diversity or equity or inclusion but having a real passion for, belief in, and curiosity about other people and their core identities is super important. 
And if you dismiss that outright, that's a big red flag for me, that your ability to engage other people thoughtfully comes from a position of stridence or a propagation of an ideology rather than interest in and belief in other people. You can't be a leader without other people. Leadership is always interpersonal. And so any of those things are red flags about people who can't engage with others. Thank you, Eric. And over the last few years, as you were rising to the top within the company and now leading the company, what were some two, three key aha moments, realizations for you that made you even stronger leader? Yeah. The first was that I have to be constantly learning from other people, that expecting that I'm going to have the answer just because I'm in the chair right now is absolutely wrong. Uh, I have to be listening to other people. I have to be learning from other people. And I have to expect that I'm never going to have it all right. Once I let go of the idea that I had to have it all right, it got a lot easier to have a lot more of it all right than I thought it would be. Um, the, the second thing, um, which is, is very important and, um, and can be really hard sometimes, is that you are never, as the leader, going to make everyone happy. You have to get over the idea that your job is to make everyone happy because a big part of leadership is about making difficult decisions. And when you make a choice, you are thereby endorsing one point of view over another. And either way, some set of people are not gonna be happy with your choice. And a lot of leaders do is go, well, then I'll just kick the can down the road. I won't decide yet. I won't make the tough choice. But when you do that, you are making a choice by default and then you're making no one happy. I love the idea of inspiring people and motivating people and exciting people. I abhor the idea of disappointing people. But guess what? Part of being a leader and a successful leader is about disappointing people. It's how you handle that disappointment that makes the difference between your ability to lead for the long term or the ability to be a very short term leader who doesn't, uh, doesn't succeed in what they've set out to do. Can't make everybody happy. The third thing is that you have to balance, I have to balance the day-to-day -day leadership of the business with a constant reconnection to where we're trying to go for the future and for the long run. It can be really easy to get sucked into what we need to do right now, and it can be really easy to dwell in the fantasy about where we want to be someday, but I have to be able to shift back and forth and to uh, rely on other people. That's going, to be my, that's going to be my fourth one. You asked for three, Chris, but my fourth one is uh, leadership can feel lonely, but it is never a solo job. Any leader who tries to do it all themselves will find that they're not going to be able to lead for the long run very successfully. It's not sustainable. Very true. Eric, and you mentioned learning. Yes. How do you make sure that you grow, continue growing as a professional? Yeah. Um, well, I, I, probably, uh, I probably get to cheat a little bit on this one, Chris, because my job, the, the consulting part of my practice, and I do still hold a tiny consulting practice just to keep myself fresh and sharp and understanding what our clients are dealing with, but my job requires me to spend a lot of time talking to, to other leaders. And in fact, those leaders are paying me for that time with me, and yet sometimes I... Uh, I feel like I should be paying them because I am constantly asking them about how they make decisions, about how they build their teams, what they're learning, where they're failing. 
It's my job to ask them those questions, but the bonus for me is that I get to glean the lessons alongside them. I have to be incisive to help them, but I also get to carry home some of the, uh, some of the spoils of those conversations too. Super fun. I am a voracious reader. I spend time every morning reading. I started to try to listen to podcasts, but as, as someone who's primarily a visual learner, I find that I get way more out of reading, whether it's on paper or on screen, uh, a little bit each day, every morning, usually over lunchtime and in the evening after my kids go to bed. Uh, and the third is I ask lots and lots of questions of everybody that I meet. And when I spend time with employees at every level of our organization, I ask the same question before I end every conversation. And that is, what should I be paying attention to that I'm missing? Or what am I not seeing that you think I should be thinking about? I always want to know from their perspective, what do they think the CEO should be thinking about that they don't know if I am? I love getting people's answers to that question. It helps keep me sharp and it helps keep me learning. This is actually a very, very brilliant question to ask. So I sure. hope everyone heard it. Maybe you let us know again what it is because I yeah. want everyone to hear it and use it. Great. It is, the question is the same every time. What am I not seeing that I should be paying attention to? Or what am I missing that you think I should be putting more time on? Ask them, what do they see that you don't see? Very, very powerful. Thank you. Eric, and you mentioned that you learn a lot from your clients, which is so true. Yeah. I completely resonate yeah. with it. I'm in yeah. a similar position as you, and it is an incredible privilege to be in such position. Yeah. What are some of the most exciting things you learned over the yeah. last few years from your clients? <laughs> Exciting is a, is a good word for it, Chris, because I have learned a lot that has been exciting for me, although I confess that sometimes the things that I find most exciting are the things that are hardest for them. So among the things that I've spent time with clients on are the hardest human decisions. And a big part of what I've learned is how do they reconcile when they have to do something for their jobs that feels really hard or maybe even wrong for them personally. Um, watching the, the leaders of Fortune 500 companies have to furlough tens of thousands of employees, uh, sitting alongside a, 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 a Fortune 100 CEO as she made the decision to abandon a strategy that was financially successful, but not successful from the perspective of engaging customers to the degree of depth that she wanted. Um, watching another CEO choose to completely change the brand orientation of her company um, in a way that many people thought was rejecting its heritage and, uh, and objected to quite, quite powerfully. These are things that I, I found exciting understanding the way that they think about these difficult decisions and helping them to reflect on how would they ultimately make those hard choices. Seeing businesses for the first time confront the reality of their ignorance of diversity and inclusion and make a decision to say, actually, what we've done for a long time isn't good enough. Seeing them confront that, have that awakening and make choices to make very powerful investments of time and of heart and of money that's super exciting, really hard in all of those cases 
for the business leaders that I was sitting with, but as an advisor, as a consultant, as a partner, incredibly exciting and a, a great opportunity to learn every step of the way. Eric, and what were some of the unexpected and powerful ways that those leaders were making those decisions in terms of um, thinking process? Yeah, well, a lot of them were losing a lot of sleep. So the way that they were that they were making the decisions, they initially tried to make it about gathering data. How much data can we get that'll tell us what the right thing to do is? But the most complex decisions, Chris, are not decisions that can be made through the use of uh, aggregation of objective data. They're the decisions that have to be made through a subjective lens. And so the, the things that these leaders did and that I got to sit alongside them while they were doing was first to reflect really deeply on their own sense of right and wrong. What do they believe and where does that stuff come from? What, where do I get my sense of what's moral and what's not? The, the second was to listen really carefully to a wider range of constituents than they ever had before about what those people thought was helpful or harmful. In the past, maybe the voice of the shareholder or the investor would have been the loudest voice. But now, even if it's still the loudest voice, it's one among many voices. And leaders are listening to their own hearts first and then listening to the words and the sentiments of a much wider range of people than they ever have before. And then the third is reflecting on what their jobs are. What is my responsibility? What is my role? To whom am I obligated? And what are their expectations of me? What do I have to deliver? If I think what I have to deliver is not changeable, then how am I gonna make sure I deliver it? If I think that what I have to deliver comes into conflict with my own sense of right and wrong or the expectations of those stakeholders in, a, in my new ethical context, then how am I going to influence my stakeholders to change their expectations of me? And if none of those things can happen, how do I keep working here? How do I continue leading in an organization where I'm not aligned morally or ethically to what its priorities are? Those are deep, big questions for people. And reflecting on those three dimensions finding a way either to influence or to reconcile the conflict is one of the most important things that a leader can do. You gotta think about it in the abstract because the really hard questions that we're all going to have to answer as leaders, whatever we do, we don't know what those questions are yet. They're about things that don't exist yet. If three years ago you had asked a leader, what would you do if your entire company and the entire world was faced with a viral pandemic that prevented people from coming to the office, they would think, why are you asking me that? What does that have to do with anything? But if you ask them to think about what do they believe about what's right and wrong for their employees and what's right and wrong for their business, they can answer those questions. Developing clarity about that means whatever the next pandemic is, whatever the next uh, international conflict is, we can be ready for questions that haven't been posed to us as leaders yet, um, because we know more about who we are and who our stakeholders are. Eric, and having those difficult conversations, was it what partly or in, even in large part inspired you to write difficult decisions, which is a book oh, yeah. wrote? <laughs> in, indeed, Chris, and thank you for asking. It's absolutely what inspired it. Um, when I went to business school, like many of these leaders, when they went to business school or came up through their companies, 
we learned a lot in tremendous detail about the critical analytical elements of running a business, about the operational elements of leading a business, about the objective parts of building something. But we spend very little time thinking about the subjective human parts. And when I started for the last now 12 years to sit alongside the, the senior most leaders in business all over the world, what I found was the things that they were grappling with were not the questions that could be answered by big data. They were not questions that could be answered by better algorithms. They were these really deeply subjective human questions. And that was the stuff that they needed help with. And uh, I wrote the book to help give the framework that I just described to you and your listeners and to give people a way to start thinking in the abstract about what do I, what do I need and what do I believe and how can that help me when the next difficult human subjective decision comes along? Eric, to build on this, could you elaborate on how could our listeners and viewers make difficult decisions better? Yeah. Building um, on what you already shared. Yeah, sure. Um, so I'll, 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 uh, I'll condense it a bit to get to the main points. The first is that you have to make difficult decisions with intent. You can't leave them to default because like I said before, not making a decision is a decision and it's probably one that's not gonna work out well for you in the end. You've gotta be able to make it with intent and you've gotta be able to make it quickly. Each day that goes by that you're not making a decision is time that you're losing to be able to get on track in the way that you wanna be. And so to make that faster and to make those decisions with integrity and with insight, Start thinking now about what matters to you, your morality, what you believe about right and wrong, and get clear about that by reflecting deeply on where it comes from. That's number one. Number two, start paying attention to a wider range of voices. As we're seeing with companies like Starbucks and Amazon right now, if you're not listening to your employees, you will find that they will begin organizing and the, the rise of labor, again, in a new way and of union organizing is a function in part of companies not listening to their workers about what they need. Start listening to as many people as you can who have different points of view from you. Number two, understand your ethical context by gathering that subjective human data from the people around you. And then number three, Know what your role is. Who are your stakeholders and what are their expectations of you? What do you do when different stakeholder groups have different expectations that come into conflict? One says you must take care of your people. The other says you must spend less. Now, what do you do? Well, how are you gonna reconcile those? You're gonna understand what your ethical context is, what's helpful or harmful for the business and what you believe about right and wrong. Those three dimensions form a triangle. When any two sides come into conflict, look to the third to help you to make the choice. And then finally, there's a bit about how you communicate your difficult decisions and how you engage other people in them. I like to say uh, there are four V's in how people think about their relationship to your decisions. People believe that either you're off making decisions on your own and you don't care about what they think. And in that case, you're gonna get a, a bit of rebellion from them at some point. Most people, when you ask them for their opinion, believe that you're giving them a veto. You're saying to them, hey, do you think I should do this? You might just be asking for their point of view. 
But they think, oh, you're asking me if you should do this. So if I say no, you've given me veto power. But the truth is you have to be really explicit. Are you giving them a chance to have a view, to tell you what they think, a voice, to have input into the decision, a vote where their input into the decision will affect the outcome, or a veto where if they say no, it doesn't go forward. A view, a voice, a vote, or a veto. Be really clear with people before you ask for their input on a difficult decision about what they have and make sure that you're aligned about it, lest your difficult decision end up coming back to bite you later on when they feel disenfranchised by your choice. That's it, do it with intent, know where you're coming from, explore those three dimensions and think about how you engage other people in that decision when you ultimately make it. Thank you, Eric. You spent a lot of time thinking and writing about how to make a very difficult decision. Are there still some critical questions related to making difficult decisions that you are still exploring and seeking answers for? Yeah, absolutely. Let me tell you, I have learned a very important lesson, which is that if you think that you should write a book about how to make difficult decisions, everyone will assume that you can make difficult decisions really, really quickly. And, uh, you know, I probably have a bit of skill and experience in doing it, but it's still really, really hard. I literally wrote the book on it and making difficult decisions is really, really hard. So, uh, so what do you do with that? Well, the first thing is to say, you get good at making decisions by practicing, by making lots of decisions, not doing them just uh, based on uh, an in-the-moment reaction, but doing it thoughtfully and with intent, reflecting on your decisions, giving as much attention to the ones that you got right as to the ones that you got wrong to see what you can learn from both of those and always reconsidering how might I make it differently in the future. Another question I wanted to ask you, I think it will serve many people in our audience. There are many people that are very capable and they have a lot to offer to the world. They're great leaders. They are very competent people, but because of experiences they had early on in their career or even in childhood, they have very low self-confidence. Yes. What advice would you give them to build their self-confidence? so that they can make those difficult decisions. Because what I often encounter when I work with clients is their view of themselves is not aligned with reality. They are much more competent, much more talented, have much more to offer to the world than they think. Well, how lucky they are then to, to get to have your perspective reflected back at them and to see themselves the way that you see them. And that's a tenet of my, of my advice here, Chris, which is if you are someone that has heard from an outside person, hey, you're really good at this, um, but you don't feel that inside, to use yourself, your physical body, but also your mind as a bit of a thermometer. Pay attention to who are the people around you that help you to feel good about yourself, to believe in your ideas, and to build on your successes. And who are the people that when you spend time with them, you walk out feeling lower about yourself, feeling less confident, feeling uncertain, un, uh, unqualified, incapable, et cetera. Once you've done that, spend a heck of a lot more time with group A and a heck of a lot less time with group B. 
contain the amount of exposure that you have to the people who erode your confidence and up the deposits that you get into your bank account from those people who make you feel good, who help you to have self-belief in part because of their belief in you. Our temptation, especially as people who are learners and especially as people who are learners who are building our self-confidence is often to focus excessively on the moments where we've fallen short. That's a trap, don't do it. Pay attention to the people that make you feel good, that help the temperature to rise in a good way in your internal thermometer and spend time with them. Great advice. Eric, and have you noticed a relationship between confidence and making difficult decisions as you're working with different leaders? Ah, an interesting question. No one's asked me that yet, Chris. Um, I think there's actually sometimes an inverse relationship, which is to say that leaders who are overly confident can fall into the trap of thinking that they know what the right thing is to do and therefore miss that important second step about understanding how might someone who is different from me see this question or this issue differently than I do. Being overly confident can be an enemy of great decision-making because it means that you might overrate your own perspective and not do enough to surround yourself with people with really different perspectives. On the other hand, being underconfident, the risk is, as we talked about before, that you wait too long to make a decision because you're so worried about getting it wrong. Making the wrong decision is often better than making no decision because at least you've done it with intent and allowed yourself to move forward. Whereas making no decision is a choice and it's never going to have your desired outcome because you've made uh, the choice of no choice by default. So that those are cases where overconfidence and underconfidence can both be the enemies of great decision-making. And if you're feeling either of those things, stop for a moment, check yourself and ask somebody else for input, especially somebody who sees the world and the choice very differently than you do. Very true. And sometimes if you make a bad decision, you will get additional information and then you can course correct. But if you exactly. don't make any decision, you're not getting any additional information. You're just The situation is just usually getting worse and you're losing time. You are guaranteeing that, uh, that, that you're not moving forward uh, when you make no decision. And that's a, that's a choice that benefits no one. Another thing that I noticed is that what you really need when it comes to self-confidence is your confidence in figuring things out. Okay. So you don't need to necessarily know everything. Just as yeah. you said, as a leader, you don't need to know everything. You need to listen and learn from other people, other leaders, but you really need to cultivate this confidence that you can figure it out. You will find a solution. Yeah. The, um, this is why uh, when you asked me before about both what are things that are indicators of great future leadership potential and what are things that are red flags, curiosity for me is always at the top of the list of, of great indicators because you don't have to know the answer. You have to be thoughtful about where to look, who to ask, what to ask, and how to bring the, those answers together in a sensible way. A lot of us come up through our careers based on being really good at what we do, which means that we're used to being expert, we're used to having the answer, we're used to, uh, to being competent at all things. 
But sometimes being a great leader is about acknowledging your incompetence and knowing who to go to to help build your understanding in a way that you can say, all right, I've got some data. I've, I've synthesized these points of view. This is how we're going to go from here. You don't have to be the source of those answers. And you cannot possibly know everything. <laughs> no way. No way. People, people, people put a lot of pressure on leaders, you know, and leaders put a lot of pressure on themselves. It's not your job to be the Wizard of Oz. Even the Wizard of Oz didn't know everything. It's your job to be the seeker, to go down that, uh, that yellow brick road and see what answers you can find without expecting yourself to be the person behind the curtain. Thank you, Eric. We are close to wrapping up. We earlier spoke about two, three aha moments related to leadership. And I wanted to ask you that same question, but broader in terms of your life, business, anything, just generally. What were two, three aha moments, realizations in the last few years that were instrumental for you as a professional or even as a human? Yeah. Um, the first is that I, I, people used to say versions of this to me all the time, and I didn't understand what it meant. But the first is that anybody who thinks they're a great leader and a great influencer should uh, go spend some time with children because um, kids don't take nonsense from adults. They can see right through nonsense. They're not interested in our jargon and they're not easily influenced. Um, they, they have very strong points of view and perspectives. I'm a dad of a nine-year-old daughter and two four-year-old sons. And the more time that I spend with them, the more that I realize, actually, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. <laughs> it doesn't have to be your own kids, but spend some time with kids and you'll get a reality check about your knowledge and about your leadership. The second is that we never know what's coming tomorrow. We get through the day every day with the belief that we have a pretty good idea about what's going on. We're pretty sure that we're going to get up. We're going to have breakfast. We're going to go to meetings. We'll do some Zoom calls. We'll, we'll do some writing, whatever it is. But the truth is we never know. And so it's important to balance working towards a future vision, working towards a goal with getting enjoyment and satisfaction and meaning out of today, because we never know what's coming. Um, it would be too scary to, to live, try to live in the world constantly thinking about the fact that I don't know what might happen. I don't know what might happen. I don't know what might happen. But also, um, we don't know what might happen. So take a moment and make sure that you're getting joy, satisfaction, meaning out of every single day. And the third is that for every bit of self-enrichment that you do, for every bit of learning that you do, every bit of reading, every bit of interviewing or talking or networking or all the things we've talked about over our time together, Chris, gosh, sometimes there's nothing more healing than just some, some time with friends, uh, some trashy television, a, a good movie, um, just doing something that's fun and seemingly meaningless. That's restorative of our souls in a way that even the best work in the world can sometimes miss. Have some fun. Um, and uh, you know, watch some trashy TV. It goes a long way towards uh, clearing out a different part of your brain and your body. Thank you. Very powerful advice. Thanks, Chris. I also wanted to ask you, you mentioned that you like to read, which is very obvious. Yeah. What were some of maybe two, three books that had transformative impact on your life? Gosh. Uh, I, I, am a, I am a voracious reader, so I am uh, always surrounded by stacks and stacks of books, and I feel like almost everything I read, something sticks with me in some way. So I'm not sure that I can 
say these are the three most transformative, but I'll give you a couple of examples of things I've read maybe in the last year that have felt really powerful for me. Um, right now I'm reading uh, The Crux. Oh, I don't know if you can see that by Richard Rummelt, which is uh, about how leaders become strategists, which I'm finding really compelling, a very thoughtfully researched and, and carefully considered, finding that, that super compelling from the perspective of someone who is a leader and has to be a strategist at the same time. Uh, consultants, we're often really good at doing better for other people than we are for ourselves. I'm finding that useful for me and my own, my own leadership. Uh, over the last year, the novel that I loved the most was The Final Revival of Opal and Nev, um, which is by an author named Donnie Walton. It's her first novel about uh, a, a, a white British singer and a black Southern American singer who become a duo in the 1960s. It's written as almost an ethnographic history as a series of interviews with lots of people around them. It's a fantastic and riveting story but it's also a profound commentary, not only on where we've come from, but where we are right now in a very particular moment in time in the US, uh, thinking about race, about identity, and about our relationships with people who hold different core identities than we do. Um, and then, you know, the third one, actually, I'm gonna go back to an old classic, one of my favorites that I revisit every now and then, Julia Cameron's The Artist's Way not one that, uh, that leaders necessarily often start with, but I often find that when I talk with leaders, almost everybody has visited it at some point along the way and found that tapping into your inner artist, what makes you creative, can have powerful lessons for us as human beings, as leaders, as business people, as community members, and beyond. So three very, very different books, but all of which have affected me at different points along the way and that I've visited or revisited in the last year. Thank you, Eric. For our listeners and viewers, yeah. what one thing you want them to do tomorrow morning at 8 a.m. differently from uh -huh. our conversation today? Yeah. Um, <laughs> one thing they should do tomorrow at 8 a.m. differently as a result of uh, or, or informed by our conversation today. Okay. Um, make a commitment to each day, not just tomorrow morning. Talk with at least two people meaningfully, who are outside of your circle, your core identities, your set of experiences. Sometimes we find that um, we can spend all day long talking to people who went to some of the same small group of colleges, grew up in the same parts of the country, do similar kinds of work, share our core racial, sexual, gender, economic identities, spend time every day engaging meaningfully, thoughtfully, kindly, and with generosity with people who are different from you in some substantive way. Start there, makes a big difference. This is a great place to end this session. Before we do that, Eric, do you have anything else you would like to add or share? Well, it's been a pleasure spending time with you, Chris. I, uh, I didn't know a lot of what you were going to ask. So it's been really fun for me to spend some time reflecting on these questions over the course of our time together. If folks are interested in learning more about some of the ideas we've talked about today, you can find difficult decisions, how leaders make the right call with insight, integrity, and empathy on Amazon or anywhere books are sold. You can also visit uh, our firm at www.ysc.com. Drop a note, get in touch anytime. I always love to hear from other people about themselves and their ideas. Thank you for, uh, for having me.
Thank you, Eric. Such a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you so much for all the advice and wisdom that you shared. And for everyone tuning in, thank you for spending this time with us. Check out Eric's book. It's called Difficult Decisions. And I'll see you all next time. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed doing the episode. Finally, I want you to remember that the only way to get access to our special offers, the only way to get our special pricing, and the only way to get samples of our content is to join the list on firmsconsulting.com. It's the only way also to get access to our unique advanced content that we make available to insiders. So if you want to get a sneak peek of things, test it out, see what's in there, this is the place to go. And finally, I want to thank you again for making us one of the largest podcast channels around the world for careers and for the 2 million downloads and counting.